We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Lobo Tigre, author and publisher of the independentspeculator.com. Lobo, welcome back to the show. Happy to be back with you, Tom. It's been a while. We've we've got lots to catch up on. Absolutely, we do. And, you know, I, I think going through a little bit of retrospectively looking at last year and then looking out for what your expectations are for this year, I think is a good a good opportunity to do that. So, you know, many of the guests that I spoke with this past year expected a recession to happen at some point during 2023. The vast majority did, in fact, and yourself included. It was hard to see how the fastest rate hiking cycle in the Fed's history wouldn't result in breaking something serious and having some catastrophic results. So looking back at that now, what do you think accounts for the U.S. not going into recession? And could that only exacerbate once it does come? Sure. Well, it's good for you to hold my feet to the fire there. I want to be accountable. Um, But I got to say, I'm not sure it's entirely true that there was no recession. Even on mainstream media, you'll see people talk about the so-called rolling recession. We certainly had an earnings recession. We absolutely had a manufacturing recession. We had, you know, any number of sectors of, it was a transportation recession. Um, But the GDP numbers, if you look at those and, you know, as, as an Austrian, I see the GDP, the whole idea as a deeply flawed metric to begin with, but by official measures. And then, you know, let's, let's be fair. If you look at the labor market, you know, those statistics, it certainly looks like there was no recession. But I, I think that is actually an oversimplified view. But, but still, OK, let's go with it. I had, I had expected something more serious to break. I had expected undeniable recession, not just recession, but undeniable recession by the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. Um, fortunately, <laughs> I said that uranium was somewhat recession resistant, if not recession proof, and that worked out spectacularly well. And my call for record high, at least nominal gold prices worked out despite my being wrong about the recession. Mm-hmm. So I, and I'm not just patting myself on the back here. I think this is important for how we're taking the lessons from last year and going forward and answering your question. So Many possible answers. I think the most immediate and obvious one, and this isn't just me or a contrarian, uh, libertarian, Austrian view, but a lot of people, even in the mainstream, have said that we underestimated the sheltering that the long long period, more than 10 years of periods being held at effectively zero, real rates effectively zero or less, Um you know, we we thought about this record tightening, breaking things, but we didn't think about how having been able to finance at such low rates would protect people and give them a safety cushion. And it's not just companies, companies that financed at very low rates for usually in the corporate world is two or three years, mm-hmm. which is important because we're coming out of that now. But also households that could refinance their mortgage at ridiculously low rates to where not only are those mortgages now assets at below market rates, you know, banks would like to buy them out. Um, they were able to refinance at lower rates and maybe withdraw some equity too. You treat your mortgage as a cash machine and go out and buy a new SUV or a new flat screen TV or whatever people spent this stuff on, despite the weaker economy. So I'm not the only one saying this. I do think that I underestimated that, certainly. I I did not see that coming, at least not to that degree. Um, But I also think there's labor hoarding. There's companies not firing people that probably should, based on the demand that they're facing. Uh, And I think that's important because you can only do that for so long. And when you do that, you actually make things worse. If, If you're wrong about no landing or, you know, things going up or, or a soft landing be more uh, gentle to your particular business. If you're wrong on that and you held on to your employees or more of them longer than you should have given demand for your products and services, you make things worse and you might end up going bankrupt and firing them all because you miscalculated. Mm-hmm. Um, other factors, we, we don't need to get too far into it. I think those are are the the 
clear and present culprits. They explain a lot. Mm -hmm. And the important thing about them is that they're limited in duration. And therefore, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been doubling down in recent interviews, you know, I think that we're still in a recession. I think it still becomes undeniable before too long. Maybe these factors, not maybe, they made me wrong about it being undeniable in 2023. But I, I think it becomes undeniable this year and probably in the first half, first quarter or two. Mm -hmm. Well, it's always interesting to look at how, you know, retrospectively a recession has started, right? They always put the start of it a lot further back than well and yeah it's after the able, fact yeah being able to recognize it as a point in time right yes but as you bring up the labor hoarding point are the jolts numbers a good indicator to add to this list of data to look at to show how strong the actual economy is well, no, no, it's a good indicator but i think of it as the opposite okay so like if you look at the absolute level of of job openings it's still at historic high levels so you say oh well it's great look at all these job openings but, but step back and look at the chart. It's falling off a cliff. Okay, it's still at high levels because of the COVID hoarding mm -hmm. pushed it so high. But it's coming down. It's been coming down over the last year. It's coming down hard. And if you look at that long chart, every time it's done that in the past has led to recession. So I actually see that as I include that when I look at recession, no recession tally marks. There's like 20 in the recession, and there's like two in the no recession. Mm -hmm. And I include the jolts numbers in the recession because the direction matters. And the direction is saying, you know, businesses are clamping down despite the labor hoarding, despite the fear of being able to get employees these days. I think that's highly significant. And not only that, in the last report, we also got the quits rate dropping. And that's different. That I, I can't just say, oh, this is a game changer. This is it. Off to the races. But that is a material change. Mm -hmm. And if not only are there fewer openings and the employers are, are really tightening up, the employees are sensing that now and they're not so willing to take the old boss and tell them to take this job and shove it, right? You know, that is a change. And I, I think that's quite meaningful going forward into this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's not only the number, like the jolts number going down that matters, but also the slope of that curve, right? Yes, well, and the magnitude. There's only one other like it. And I think that was 2008. <laughs> right? Huh. Funny, funny how that rhymes as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Lobo, what would have to happen in your mind for the Fed and the Treasury to achieve the soft landing that they were after? Well, I, I would have to be wrong about the undeniable recession becoming, I mean, sorry, the recession becoming undeniable. I'd have to be wrong that we're actually in recession. And a lot of people, they'll point at the labor market and say, oh, by definition, we're not in recession because the, the labor market's so strong, the unemployment rate is so low. But that's actually not the definition of a recession. Um, and you know, you can the so-called technical definition of two quarters of negative GDP is a definition, not necessarily the only one. I mean, a, a recession, what is a recession? It's an economic contraction. And we can measure that. We try to measure that very imperfectly, I think, with GDP. But that's why we look at that so-called technical definition of two quarters in a row of negative GDP. Uh, you know, a strong labor market helps, but that's not the definition. And you know, I like to pull out this extreme example of of Pol Pot in the in the Democratic Republic of Kampuchea. Declare it was written right in the Constitution. There is no unemployment in Kampuchea. Mm -hmm. Uh, what does that mean? It means they took everybody and they put them out at the point of a rifle in the rice paddies. And yeah, there was no recession. doesn't mean they had economic growth. I mean, sorry, there was no unemployment, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they had economic growth. So um, I, I think this has been a, a false signal that has been strongly, if not manipulated, it's just been strongly distorted by the pandemic. And that creates this false sense of security. Now, so to get a real soft landing, that needs to be wrong. I need to be wrong. The actual overall economy is much healthier than I think it is. All these other, you know, the 20 bearish indicators, you know, from, from the leading economic indicators to federal revenues, to you know, just, uh, you know, the earnings cuts, all these things, or bellwethers like FedEx 
call, you know, reducing their outlook. Or OPEC, low, or sorry, not OPEC, Saudi Arabia, lowering oil prices. These are huge major indicators that, in my view, are highly recessionary. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be wrong about all that. And then we get a soft landing. And I have to be really, really wrong to get the no landing scenario, which isn't even in the mainstream. The mainstream is, oh, we're going to get a soft landing, which mm-hmm. is still, people forget, a recession. It's just not so bad. It's a mild recession, but it's still a recession. Right. Well, before we get to the outlook for the world and, you know, a couple of those threads that you mentioned, I'd like to stick with the Fed for now. You know, they kind of really came out in the two weeks before Christmas and changed their tune completely from the previous meeting. So what do you think that they were reacting to then? Well, one explanation is that despite what they say, they actually are not entirely stupid. They do see many of the same indicators I'm looking at, and they didn't want to overdo it. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this difficult position. Poor poor Powell, <laughs> I think he's flat out lying when he says he loves his job. You know, it, imagine having to be stuck between being remembered as the next Arthur Burns, right, or... um you know, killing the economy and, and pilloried for, for destroying unnecessarily jobs and, and creating widespread misery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's not an enviable position. I don't see how you sleep at night because I, I, I don't think there actually is a solution to this problem that does not cause one or the other. Mm-hmm. But if I'm right, and if the data is as compelling as I say, and they're not entirely blind and stupid, then I can see them wanting to pull back. And again, remember, you know, the markets went nuts with with the 75 basis point cuts projected for to, for this year for 2024. And like, oh, and and they and the market rates are are equivalent to like six cuts and and soon like March. Mm-hmm. And and the Fed never said that. So the the Powell pivot here wasn't like 2018. It it was a change, and it was backed up by his colleagues in the dot plot. So it's not just Powell. And, you know, the the most significant, ironically, is the mushiest part. It was less than the dot plot. It was Powell's conference afterwards. And when when the reporters there feeding their milk toast pre-approved questions about, well, gee, isn't doesn't this indicate a bit of softening and so on? He did not push back and say, no, we're fighting to 2%. I mean, he did cling to the target. But, you know, he didn't do his usual Powell thing of, or rate hikes are definitely on the table and we'll do what's necessary, blah, blah, blah. So so that was a change. And that's, I think, why the markets overreacted. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question here, Tom. I've lost the thread. But I, I guess what I'm saying is the, you know, the Fed's... Yeah. I, I just don't think you get there be, by being entirely stupid. Like we disagree with them or, or they can't tell you the truth so that they look stupid. Like if, if Powell comes out and says, wow, the shit is really hitting the fan. Can I say that on your show? Sorry. Yeah, that's but if he says that, he will cause the very problem. He cannot, he literally cannot tell the truth if it's bad. Mm-hmm. So you look at the stupid things they say, and it looks like he's stupid or you know, he's blind. He doesn't see anything. Uh, well, mm-hmm. I, don't, I just don't think that's true. I, I think, you know, don't forget this guy was appointed by a Republican. <laughs> he, he, they think that they are the managers of the ship of the economy and they have to steer it well and they're trying to do their best or they think they're trying to do their best to minimize damage and you know bring the ship home nowhere in that mission does it say telling the truth and so <laughs> it's a great point i mean i i don't think that's hyperbole i, I think that's mm-hmm. just the the observable fact mm-hmm. right so so yeah i mean has the Fed really shifted? I think they're, you know, they're famous for, for floating trial balloons. Mm-hmm. And it's no sooner did they have this, um, you know, FOMC press release and Powell's soft talk and so on. And then the markets overreact. So what do they do? Instantly, Fed speak turns very hawkish. And everybody else, I mean, everybody that came after that was talking, oh, yeah, rate hikes are still on the table. Of course, they're still on the table. Anything's on the table. They're data dependent. Mm-hmm. Rate cuts are on the table, too. None of this means anything. It's all about trying to, uh, you know, massage and manage the economy with the jawbone. And, you know, it's maybe kind of pathetic and well. disgusting to a hard-minded, numbers-oriented person. But, you know, that's the world we live in right now. Mm-hmm. So do you think that they could be more accepting of 
above a 2% target, considering what could be breaking within the economy? Absolutely. I mean, well, let's put it this way. they Unlike the ECB, they do have a dual mandate. And at some point, if there's enough pain in the real economy, they have to remember that second part of the mandate, mm -hmm. uh, and which means there actually is a, a, a very real chance of, of Powell becoming the next Arthur Burns. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if, if especially in an election year, if I'm right about the recession becoming undeniable and there's real pain out there and people are screaming, politicians are screaming, supposedly the Fed is independent. Um, but that is that is really tough when everybody but everybody is screaming for your blood. I mean, I, I'll be surprised if Powell has the guts to be this generation's Volcker. Mm -hmm. Despite, you know, wanting to be at every turn, right? Or, or at least position yourself. I mean, you, it's par for the jawbone course. You have to talk tough. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, we'll, we'll see what they do. So, so the answer to the question is, I think they will never officially give up the 2% target, but I can see them, and, and they're not gonna say, oh, well, we're checking you out. They're gonna say, oh, well, this situation poses systemic risk, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore we have to, with our dual mandate, change policy in such a way. And, and Powell has actually said this, this isn't just me supposing or guessing or, or Fed whispering. He has said that the, the caveat is systemic risk. Like this, he said this after the guilt problem in the UK. Remember when the guilt market blew up and mm -hmm. and uh, Bailey had to do an about face in in the UK. Don't call it QT, but we'll do QT anyway, right? Uh, that when that came up and reporters asked Powell about something like that happening in the US, he, you know, he hemmed and hawed two percent, blah blah blah. But he admitted that yes, if there was systemic risk, no, they're not going to let the whole economy blow up. They'll do you know whatever's necessary to to keep things going. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's not a conspiracy theory that's out of his own mouth. Mm -hmm. So Lobo, what is your outlook on inflation going forward? And we can break this apart in many ways, but let's just start with, let's say input costs to our everyday goods and how the average person starts to feel inflation. Well, the average person is already feeling it. And, and this is something, this is, this is where you know, I'm I'm an equal opportunity critic of government. I really, sorry, Trump fans, I had a great deal of trouble with Trump's uh, excess use of authority, executive authority, even if you thought it was in a good cause, you know, executive orders can be reversed and they were, mm -hmm. right? I, so I had problems with Trump. And so remember that when I now have problems with Biden and I have a huge problem with Biden going out there and equating re falling inflation with falling prices. That's it, inflation is a rate of increase. Mm -hmm. So a decreased rate of increase is not the same of it as a decrease in prices. And okay, you could either say that he was senile and forgot at that moment and made a mistake, which is not a good thing, or he was lying, mm -hmm. which is not a good thing. Either way, there's no way that those words can come out of his mouth. The way he said that, that was not either uh, duplicitous or incapacitated. And, and not something you want in your commander in a chief. Uh, remember, I'm an equal opportunity government basher. So it's, I'm not just being anti-Biden here. I'm not a Republican. I'm, I'm a libertarian anarchist. <laughs> so, but, but this, this matters because somehow people get bamboozled. People, especially those who are, you know, want to see the best possible in their favorite politician, or if not their favorite politician, the one they see as being on their side. You know, he went and he went on the picket lines with the average man. He he cares about inflation and standing up for the little guy. So so it's easier to accept an error coming from someone you agree with or want to believe in like that. But this is a huge error, and it's a lie. And you, the reality is, if inflation goes to zero now. Our prices are still higher than they were last year and the year before. Mm -hmm. Your cost of living did not go down. My, you know, our audience knows this, but the average Joe out there feels that. And that's why all these people in the administration keep, you know, pulling their hair out of, of why doesn't Biden get credit for this great economy? You know, why, why don't the people see how wonderful he is and how wonderful Bidenomics is? Well, it's not. Their quality of life is not what it was before. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I'm, I'm digressing perhaps a bit, but this feeds into my outlook for inflation this year. 
Um, uh, I don't remember specifically what you and I spoke of last time we talked, but I was not one of these people who was saying, oh, inflation is going to keep going up to the moon. When inflation was around 9%, there were some pundits on the sort of right side of the divider line. Oh, yeah, it's it's going up. You know, so all this money printing is going forever. The wage um, price but, spiral. But that, but that was when the base effects started kicking in. And, you know, if you're looking at 5 to 7% inflation the year before, for inflation to be above 9% this time, you know, you, you add the two together, you're looking at 15, 16, 17% inflation for that number to, to keep going up at that rate. That was a very tall order when the Fed had pivoted, right? They had started tightening and so on. Mm -hmm. So base effect alone called for moderating inflation. And we have seen that. And I was right about that. But but as even the mainstream people say, going from nine to four or three is a lot easier than going from four or three to two. And to throttle the economy enough to do that without overdoing it, this is a Jeff Gunlock thing. Like he doesn't believe it'll stop it too. If they actually stick to their guns and make it go down to two by mm -hmm. destroying jobs, remember, this is not a benign medicine that they're giving here. It, it, you know, they are administering pain and destruction to try to get inflation down to 2%. If they do enough of that to get it there, it's hard to see it stopping there. So, but to answer the question, I, I think they do blink. I also think that don't forget there's fiscal policy. And people will think, oh, well, the so the, the grossly misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, that was a couple of years ago. So you know, that's already done. The pigs through the python. No. You know, appropriations are one thing, spending is another. You know, most of that money still has to be spent. I mean, you know, our audience in the mining sector knows how long ago, how long has even this administration, never mind the prior administration, talked about money for the uranium sector. And they created this program, even under Trump, they created this program, which the Biden administration continued of establishing a uranium fund, like the like the strategic political reserve, sometimes referred to as the strategic petroleum reserve. Right? They established it, but it wasn't until mid last year that they spent a dime buying any uranium on it and to put into it. And and a lot of the incentives that we're seeing under the, the grossly misnamed IRA are just now beginning to be spent. So that pig still has to work through the Python. So what am I saying? Base effects are no longer a, a, a headwind. They're now a tailwind. The base effects have been cooling. And that last mile, as it were, you know, going from 3 or 4% to 2% is much harder. And we still have fiscal policy that pig's still working its way through the Python. So I expect stickier inflation. You know, as we're recording this, we're, we're recording the day before CPI day, Tom, I don't know how quickly you'll get up, but it'll be interesting. You know, what can I say now that won't either be like terribly right <laughs> or terribly wrong in 24 hours or less? Um, but even the mainstream expectation is actually for headline inflation to jot up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, suppose it jots up more than they expect, you know, that'll be interesting. Uh, long-winded answer to your question, I'm afraid here. My my expectation is sticky inflation probably going higher over the course of this year. And that's if nothing breaks. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm right about the undeniable or the recession becoming undeniable, my expectation is much bigger power pivot, much more profligacy from the rest of Washington, more fiscal policy and stimulus. And that will be highly inflationary. We have to first feel the pain. We have to, you know, we have to go through at least the initial parts of the ringer there before they pivot. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I don't, I don't actually expect a multi-year recession or Doug Casey's Greater Depression, uh, you know, tent shanties all over the place. I think the moment that starts, they they open the money floodgates again. Mm -hmm. So if I'm right about this, we see that by the end of this year. Now, that sounds a lot like a prediction, and I may be wrong. I was wrong about 2023, so please don't take this as a as a gold-plated prediction. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying this is what seems most likely to me. Well, and I find it hard to disagree with you, you know, especially, as you said, considering this is in, an election year, they want to avoid any pain, if possible. Right. Well, supposedly the Fed's supposed to be independent. They don't care. But yeah, tell me another one. Mm -hmm. You know, if 
This, to give credit to my fellow Puerto Rican, Peter Schiff does a good job of hammering on this point. If the Fed is supposed to be independent, they not only can, but they should be telling the administration and Congress everything they're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. Like they have a building full of hundreds of economics PhDs. And if they think fiscal policy is wrong or they think the policies coming from the White House are, are incorrect or misguided, they're not supposed to sit back and say, oh, no, that, that you know, we're into, we, we can't say anything. That's not our affair. No, they're the economic experts. They're the freaking central bank of the United States. They are the top economists and bankers to the world. And it is a cop out and I think flat out dishonest to say, oh, oh no, no, we can't do that. We're independent. That's the very thing they're supposed to do if they're independent. Mm-hmm. So Lobo, let's look a little bit more longer term at inflation. How about the trend of de-dollarization? You know, considering that we have been exporting inflation for many years through trade deficits with much of the rest of the world, will that be inflationary as well once that, you know, once those dollars return to the US that don't have demand abroad anymore? Uh short answer is yes. I think there's no question. A longer answer is uh, my dear friend and mentor, Doug Casey, thought this would happen in 2009 mm-hmm. after 2008. <laughs> um, hadn't happened yet. So I got to tip my hat to my other fellow Puerto Rican, Brent Johnson, the dollar milkshake guy, who is not anti-gold as much as gold bugs love to hate him. Um, you know, it it takes a long time for empire to fall. And I, I am persuaded that the de-dollarization trend is absolutely a... Uh, a mega trend for decades to come. This is happening. No empire lasts forever. No fiat currency lasts forever. The dollar is no exception. This not only can happen and will happen, it is happening. Like every year, the dollar's share of reserves around the world decreases. Mm-hmm. And since the so-called weaponization of the dollar and the SWIFT system after Russia invaded Ukraine again, um, you know, it is it is very clear, abundantly clear that central bankers around the world are seeing the dollar as uh, a, a risk and not just a safe haven as well. You know, they get that. They Anybody that was in denial before, you know, what happened with Russia, and you say, oh, well, we're the nice guys. You know, we're not Russia. We're, we're, we're friends with the U.S. Well, you are now. <laughs> but, you know, who knows what happened? Remember the prior administration's, you know, great rupture of of cordial relationships with Europe, our closest allies. Uh, sorry, Trump fans, he tore up, he tore up deals with Europe left and right, and don't don't forget that trade wars too. Um, and you know, and don't accuse me of being a Biden fan because I say that I'm just trying to look at reality here, guys. So, I, and I think the central bankers around the world, the ones who aren't complete idiots, they have to see that. it's sort of like, you know, waking up to discovering that you you thought the garden snake that you took as a pet is actually a a coral snake and it's deadly poisonous. You know, as long as he's nice to you, that's fine. But the moment it changes his mind, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So this is a very real thing. I'm not dismissing it at all, but it's also a multi-decade trend, Tom. I got to tell you, in terms of my investment decisions, my speculations right now, this year, my shopping list, I don't even think about this. Totally. This is one of those, you know, big picture ideas. Yeah, eventually someday it'll happen. Uh, you know, dollar's not going away tomorrow. It's not going away this year or next. You know, if if you follow the trend line of de-dollarization, it maybe hits a breaking point a decade or two from now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when that breaking point is hit, I think things happen very quickly. It won't continue in a linear fashion. But for now, it's it's uh, an interesting or even amusing theory to think about. It does not inform my investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that that nuanced answer, Lobo. As Sorry, usual. let me just one more thing. Remember, yeah. remember last year, everybody's all excited about the BRICS meeting in August. They were going to announce the gold-backed currency because Russia said so of all credible sources, right? Mm-hmm. You know, come on, get a grip. It's, let's just take a deep breath. Let's look at reality. Um, don't let yourself get hyped up by, you know, exciting headlines from people who want to sell you something. So Lobo, on your Twitter feed, you've posted some recent articles by the World Bank predicting weaker growth for the world as well. So possibly 
the weakest since the pandemic. Is this a negative for the commodities complex in general if demand and growth slows significantly? Well, slower growth is still growth. So it's a problem if you're a miner or a producer of energy and you have certain projections and your output is, is here and now it's going to be here to match demand. Well, yeah, you have to change and that's going to affect your earnings and everything. So yes, it's material. Uh, if they're right, though, it's it's not a recession. It's not the end of the world. It's just not as robust growth as we wanted. And, and adjustments should make things okay. Um, you know, my problem with that is I think they're overly optimistic. I mean, it just Europe is already reporting negative GDP as as distorted as that GDP number is, right? Uh, the trouble in Germany is, and you know, the, the heart of the European economy is huge and not easily solved. So I think those projections are optimistic. Again, history tends to be nonlinear. If people start, if not panicking, but just sort of in aggregate, making different choices, spending differently, borrowing differently, investing differently in businesses or hiring and so on. Uh, things can change very quickly. Things curve. Uh, you know, history is never linear. So uh, again, if I'm right, or, or let me broaden, I think the world is already in a global recession. I see it deepening. And the the denial issue that I was talking before was was the US case. I think US exceptionalism will not apply here. I do not think the US will be exempt from a global recession. I forget the number. It's something like 30 plus percent of S&P 500 companies are exporters. So, okay, you say, great, 70% aren't. Well, still, you know, if the 30% is in trouble, that is a huge hit to your economy. Mm -hmm. You know, if your growth rate is 5% and 30% of your companies are in deep trouble, that 5% is, is seriously threatened. So, um, I don't know if they ever officially declare this recession, or if they do, it won't be till after the fact. But I see a weakening global economy. I see the U.S. falling to that, if not from its own internal problems. Like the, I don't think the Fed is necessarily done breaking things. We talked earlier, your first question, about these historically low rates for so long insulating companies and households from the Fed's tightening action. When that runs out, it's not going to be linear. You'll see a break. Mm -hmm. And so if, again, I keep saying if, because I have been wrong before and I will be wrong again. But if I'm right about the recession, yes, becoming undeniable in the, you know, that, that doesn't just make things continue to get worse. It makes things suddenly get much worse. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think a symptom of that is something that you mentioned earlier, the Saudis cutting the oil price. You know, what incentive would they have to, you know, be cutting, cutting production for the last couple of years and now cutting oil price? To, yeah, to no, that's a really good point, Tom. And I, I think it's a huge, like, violently waving red flag. There, there is no way they would do that unless they felt they had to. Mm -hmm. They have spent years defending the price by cutting production. And this is an, this is a, you know, I don't know if there's anybody whose name over there starts with the letter P that we call, call it a pivot and, and hang it on his name. Uh, but this is a, a major change in policy. And, and there's no way they would do that because the economy is fine or, or will have less growth, but still growth. Uh, you know, they are concerned about demand. That's the only explanation for that. And, and to do it unilaterally, right? Just, you know, we are going to do that. I think they're seriously concerned about demand. And you could say, oh, well, they have some other agenda, whatever, fine. But they don't have the agenda of your Powell's and Lagarde's and Biden's of the world who, who have an incentive to make things look as rosy as possible. These are mm -hmm. businessmen who care about, you know, if, if, if nothing else, we should, I think, be able to count on their greed. And if their business decision to maximize their profit is to cut oil prices, you know, you know, beep, beep, beep. This is, you know, red alarm bells and flashes and signals all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing that you and I kind of touched on before we hit record here today it was the idea that, you know, the projections for lithium production, demand, 
for electric car demand, all of these things really get thrown out the window if we're going to experience this global slowdown, right? Well, well, two things. If oil is an indicator for economic growth and outlook, and if lithium is the new oil, <laughs> what what is lithium telling us about the economy? I mean, that is a screaming uh, red alarm there because lithium is just tanked, right? It's fallen off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, actually, we have, um, if you don't mind my saying so, we have two free reports available for download on our website, one on nickel and one on lithium. You can find these in the free report section of the website. Mm-hmm. And in there, we talk about what happens in a recession. And it is well documented that in recessions, auto sales drop off. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. This isn't rocket science. It's no big surprise. If people are tightening their belts, they'll hold on to the old clunker longer, right? So auto sales fall off a cliff. A typical recession, an auto sales recession lasts two years. Now, here's the thing. It, oddly enough, uh, luxury cars tend to do better. They still take a hit, but they take less of a hit than normal cars. Well, why is that? Well, your your Ferrari buyer, or you know, you know, they're not good. a recession isn't going to stop them from buying a Ferrari, or in most cases, it won't. Right? That that's not their concern. Uh, it's ordinary cars that people will make the different decision on, and electric cars. There are some that are considered luxury, but many of them are your your, your Tesla Model Three, your entry level ones. They're not they're not necessarily luxury cars. They're just electric. And we get to feel good about ourselves for saving the planet, buying these things. So you're buying something more expensive anyway that has basically the same or lesser performance characteristics as an ICE car, an, an internal combustion engine car, because it makes you feel better. And, and you can afford it because we have low interest rates and, and the economy is so strong. And now that changes. Interest rates are higher. So your car loan, by the way, becomes much more expensive. And it was already more expensive for the same performance. And by the way, gas is getting cheaper because you know the economic demand is is suppressing oil prices. Right. The whole logic there goes on its head. So I, I think this is another case of whatever the politicians say and whatever the rosy uh, you know rose lens pundits will tell you. The people who are trying to make money, hard boiled businessmen and women in the world, are looking at that and they're slashing production. It's it's not just lithium, but so called battery metals across the board are taking the hit. Um, and, uh, you know, all of this would have been predictable to anybody who thought the recession was coming. And I, that, that was my view. Uh, so, so we were left with that question again of, you know, why do we have all these things that look like recession, screaming recession, and yet the GDP numbers still say we're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Well, remember, they always declare recession in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Lobo, you know, considering the setups that are possible for the economy coming this year, you know, whether we get a hard landing, a soft landing, or no landing, is there a scenario that you see that's actually bearish for gold? That would only be the no landing scenario. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, any of the others, you know, hard landing, soft landing, remember, soft landing is still a recession. It's just a milder one, but it's still a recession. Mm-hmm. And recessions tend to be good for gold. That's actually a very strong correlate. Recessions, gold likes recessions. Sorry, but you know it makes perfect sense. It's uh-huh. a, it's a safe haven asset. Uh, so of the four, three of them are recessionary scenarios, and those are all bullish for gold. The no landing scenario is not bullish for gold as a safe haven. As a commodity, however, the no landing scenario is bullish for commodities, and that could be bullish for gold. Not a promise here, but it could be. Uh, also, the wealth effect, particularly in uh, BRICS countries or the emerging markets, that is bullish for gold. When the Chinese feel wealthy and they have you know money to save, they buy gold. That's their culture. We don't have to talk them into that or tell them how wonderful gold is. That's that's their natural, if not instinct, uh, proclivity. Let's say. And then you also have the central banks and the de-dollarization that we've talked to and the concern they now have about maybe hedging their bets, if only a little, against something dramatic happening to the dollar or their access to dollars. Um, you know, so so that's something that has, you know, even if there's no landing, right? And even if there's an economic boom, the central banks of the world, especially the ones that are in opposition to the Western bloc, or at least to the United States, they're not gonna say, oh, okay, well, we're fine with the Fed 
controlling our financial future. We're fine with New York channeling all our funds through the SWIFT system. That, that's not going to happen. So even in that no landing scenario, I don't see it making gold tank. I mean, we're not going back to a thousand bucks or you know whatever. It I can see weakness, but I, I don't see gold cratering even in that scenario. And also don't forget, we also have geopolitical risk. So you could say, okay, e- economic boom again, and there's less safe haven demand on the financial front. We're in a world where there are two hot wars right now, either of which could turn into World War III. I'm not predicting World War III. I'm just saying that card is not off the table. This is not a world where people feel, you know, hunky-dory, everything's fine, everything's perfectly safe. This is a world where you can wake up and, you know, thousands of people have been bombed or massacred and kidnapped or whatever. It's just, it's the kind of world that is supportive for safe haven assets, regardless of the economic outcome. So I, I guess the short version is, don't get myopic about just this landing scenario and how that can impact commodities. There's a bigger picture here in the world. So where where do you see the greatest risk versus reward speculation opportunities for the gold miners? Is there a point in a project's life that you can point to which provides great gains while managing risk of your capital the best out of these scenarios? Oh, that's a softball question, Tom. You know the answer to that. I love the pre-production sweet spot. There's a free report that on, on that on our website. It's called The Greatest Discovery of My Career, um, which I did not discover the pre-production sweet spot. My, my claim to fame here is, to my knowledge, I'm the first one to actually measure, mm-hmm. like collect the data and measure the typical gains. Uh, it is not typically the stuff of 10 baggers, but the odds of success are much higher than swinging for the bleacher on 10 baggers. So the specific answer to your question is developers building their first mine is, in my experience, the best combination of higher probability of success and still extraordinary gains, at least by Wall Street standards. You know, this is before Bitcoin and stuff. If you want to gamble on cryptos, you know, the gains there are... I remember Doug Casey, you'd always say that mining stocks were the most volatile um, speculations on earth. Well, that was before Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, but let me go sideways with this. And as much as I'd love everybody to read my free report on the pre production yes, that is hands down my favorite way of speculating. Let me take a step back here because I actually think there's a, a broader answer to the general drift of your question. And that is that Okay, last year, my my highest conviction trade was uranium. This year, my highest conviction trade is gold. But the gold stocks are still on sale. Like gold itself is still over 2,000 bucks. We've been flirting with new all-time nominal highs. But the gold stocks, people hate them. Uh, you know, in 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 dollar terms, many of them are on the low, low end of their 52-week ranges. In gold terms, if you price them in gold, which is not only a real price, it's directly relevant in terms of what it is that they're doing, the nature of that business in a gold business, mm-hmm. you price the gold stocks in gold and they're at or near like historic lows, all-time lows. And that is an opportunity in my view. I mean, it's it's one thing for a gold bug to say, oh, I'm bullish on gold, yeah, hey, woohoo. But to be in that scenario when you actually have access to bargains still on the table, this is what this is one reason why I liked uranium so much a year ago. The, the writing was on the wall, uranium was already heading up, but it had gone sideways for a while and people were sick of it. They hated it. Uh, you know, there were memes on the internet of uranium just lying there, not doing anything, right? And people hated the uranium stocks, you know, people, especially people who chased them in 2021. When that previous spike, a lot of those, when, when the first excitement came in, you know, a lot of people chase those stocks. There, many of those people are still underwater. But last year, people just hated these stocks. Um, but the price was going up. And so I, I got very excited and, and I made a lot of money for myself and my readers on uranium stocks. I feel this way about gold. I mean, for all the reasons you and I have been discussing, of course, I can be wrong. But if I'm right, we're already at 2000 bucks for years, more or less, on average, going into a, a bullish gold environment. Just 10% up from here is 2200 which is way above previous highs. A 20% gain, 2400 bucks. you know, that would that would have people in the mainstream just, like, paying attention, I think. And that's just a 20% increase from here. Mm-hmm. So to have that possibility 
possibility, not certainty, but that possibility at a time where you can still buy great gold stocks on sale. I just see it as a highly asymmetric risk reward proposition right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's that's my shopping list. My shopping list for my clients of the independent speculator. It's all gold stocks, and I'm working on a new edition for Monday when I'm going to hopefully come up with some good ideas here for where, where I'm going to go next. Because I, I bought the last ones I had on there. I'm, I'm still shopping. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your highest conviction call for 2023 was uranium. Of course, many of the fundamental drivers were in place for many months, but the technical setup also nicely last year, right? So what were the two main catalysts that you and Rick Rule were looking for, for that market to really ignite? Well, I'm sure Justin Hune was was with us on that. I don't know who else, but, you know, I, I'm not saying I was the only one who did this. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's a call I but got I'm, right. But I'm interviewing so, only you today. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, actually, the, the fundamentals have been there since 1997. <laughs> and this has been a source of frustration that you look at the fundamentals for the market and it just seemed like it had the prices had to go up and they did for a while and then they didn't then they did again that fukushima happened and then for years after that it seemed like low prices had to cure low prices but it just kept not happening so i gotta say that you know the fundamentals stronger than ever uh, but that's not new and the technicals aren't really new either uranium bottomed in in 2016, 17, I don't remember exactly where the bottom was, the official bottom, such as it is. Um, but five or six years ago, and it, it it took a while to carve out a bottom. But by 2018, mid to late 2018, it was become obvious that it was hitting new highs and new lows, like not just dragging along the bottom, but it was new lows. So, you know, 2018, we're going on 2024. We're, it's almost six years ago now that we started seeing the technicals turn bullish. And it was later in 2018 when I started buying uranium because I got that as confirmation. What's changed really is that now the narrative has become incredibly strong, courtesy of Generalissimo Putin and his invasion of Ukraine and the big energy scare. Uh, you know, this is one of those things where even even the Greta Thunbergs of the world were telling Germany not to shut down its nuclear power plants because everybody could see if they did that, they need to burn more coal. And that's exactly what they did. Right. And coal is even more evil than uranium these days. Carbon, you know, isn't it kind of funny that carbon based life forms should be so anti-carbon, the thing they're made of. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, I digress. The, the point is, though, that the narrative now has joined the fundamentals and the technicals. And you may say, oh, well, that's wishy-washy narrative. Who cares about narrative? Well, the politicians care about narrative, right? They, you know, politician is a person who says, sees a parade and jumps in front and says, follow me. So if the parade is now saying, holy cow, we're all going to die in 12 years if we don't stop putting carbon in the atmosphere and we're not going to make it without nuclear then that's a parade that politicians not only can, will, but are jumping in front of right now. So you know, I think you could see that coming before. I think I were, we were right. And now you've got on top of that. So I don't know how deep you want to go down this rabbit hole, but we also more recently we had Sput. This wasn't last year, but we had this new Sprott vehicle hoover up a lot of the cheap pounds. And you know it's it's hard for a spot price to move when there's some marginal seller out there who doesn't care about the price they get. They just want to get rid of this stuff, right? And until that was dried up, until that was removed from the market, that was an overhang. It just couldn't get out of under. Mm -hmm. And Sput came in with enough demand and just just hoovered all that up. It you know there is nobody out there now who's going to sell their uranium for eighteen dollars a pound, or thirty, or forty, or fifty. If there was, they would be selling now. Right. So in that case where that secondary supply has been sucked up, you know, that was a big change last year that I, I made me bullish. Um, and for what it's worth, I feel the stars aligning similarly for gold this year. You know, gold bug likes gold. I know it's not a great headline, but I, I'm 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 not a broken clock on this. This wasn't my call last year, and I feel very strongly about it this year. Well, you know, that being considered, Lobo. You're mentioning the secondary supply that was hoovered up last year. 
Is there more secondary supply that can come online now as we've reached the incentive price? And why is there such a big question mark as to how many pounds that can come online? No, you're, you're exactly right. I get it. And this has been part of my writing reason. This is one of the reasons why um, I'm more bullish on gold than uranium this year. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I've given up on uranium. It's not that it's done. Yes, high prices cure high prices, but that takes years. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the free report department, we also have a free report on uranium. And there was a finding in there that was new to me. This this was not what I expected, is that we looked at the low-hanging fruits, you know, the mothball production from the big producers and the low-cost um, projects that are being built now, that are coming online now already. You know, we looked at all that, and my, I had thought that that low-hanging fruit would would obviate the overhang and, and the market would become in balance again for a while until the demand kept going up. Uh, but we did the math on that. It turns out that no, it, it's actually not enough. If all that low hanging fruit comes online, it's not enough to meet the demand already on the table. But this comes to your question. Now there's a new secondary supply. I talked about you know the, the old secondary supply, people who had bought a long time ago and just wanted out and they were willing to sell for 18 bucks or say your Japanese utilities that had bought a hundred years worth of fuel and now they shut all their reactors down and they were just getting out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's gone. But the people who bought those guys from those sellers, the new institutions, the funds, and even mining companies that bought pounds at $30, $40, $50, you know, now they're looking at $90, $93 the last I checked. If you bought at 40 plus dollars, you've got a double on your hands right now. Mm-hmm. And your, you know, your mission in life is not to sequester uranium, especially like if you're a miner and you bought that uranium in order to finance your mine building, and now we've got high prices that you're going to build a mine to meet, you're going to sell that uranium. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how much? I don't know. Nobody knows this. So th- I'm sorry, but the, the honest answer here, Tom, is I don't know what will happen here. I don't know if enough of this new secondary supply, which you've rightly pointed out, will come onto the market at these levels or not. You know, it could be that everybody sees the same writing on the wild. It could be that none of these people sell. They just hold it. They're waiting for 150 bucks a pound, right? If that happens, we could see that price this year. But but we could also see people who are building mines or who, you know, they're a fund that has other needs or other investment ideas and they're sitting there on big unrealized profits, we could see a lot of new secondary supply keep the uranium market more in balance this year. So I see, I remain extremely bullish for years, if not decades going forward on uranium. But this year, specifically, 2024, I do not know what will happen. It's possible that secondary supply will keep the spot price suppressed. Um, and if nothing else, after such a you know torrid ramp up, nothing goes vertical forever. Just just general market dynamics, some correction, something of a breather would seem perfectly normal. And that what that does though, it doesn't. I'm not selling everything. I'm not exiting uranium. But given the question mark and given the potential for correction, um, I'm looking for that as the next buying opportunity. So I'm, I, I have no uranium stocks on my shopping list now. But if we get that correction then I will be there as a buyer. Mm-hmm. And if not, I, I've already got a portfolio full of uranium stocks and I'll be you know, cashing in, laughing all the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when we consider that balance of the scale that that secondary supply brings on, I would think that that is, in a lot of ways, a much better scenario for that sector as a whole to have a sustained incentive price and maybe a little bit above for many years rather than this sharp spike that oh absolutely i agree with you blows everything up (laughs) yeah i I wholeheartedly agree with you it'd be nice to see well like in the same way that the potential sellers that we're worried about now who bought at 30 40 50 bucks a pound Mm -hmm. right if those are replaced by new people who buy from them at this level like if they start feeding into the market not not dumping everything all at once but carefully taking some profits, feeding into the market. Well, now you're going to have a new set of buyers who are in the 90 to 100 range. Uh, That would be very healthy for the market. I would Mm -hmm. much rather see a steady 
you know, measured pace upward for years and years to come, that would be great for the business. If you're in the actual business of mining the stuff, right, you know, you're not going to model, like if it spikes to 150 bucks this year, you're not going to model that. That'd be crazy. Mm -hmm. But it just keeps going on. And that gives you confidence. Your your three-year trailing average turns into a very conservative price. If you get a huge spike, your three-year trailing average becomes riskier. So I, I I agree with you. I think that would actually be the best thing for the business. Though, of course, as a, as a stock speculator, you, you know, you're happy to see that that blow off peak if we get a mania. If we get a mania, I, I, pro- I won't just take profits. I'll probably sell wholesale. Like if, if the price goes unreasonably high, if it goes nuts, right, I'm just going to I'm going to cash in on that because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong and it goes even more nuts. You know what? Nobody goes broke taking profits. But if, if but if I'm right and it is nuts, it will it will crash not back to you know unsustainable prices or, or below cost of production necessarily, but it will crash back to reality, mm-hmm. and then I'll be able to back up the truck for new speculations. Mm-hmm. Well, and Lobo, considering let's call it the market order as we reach these price levels, does this start to create? more buyout opportunities for smaller companies and higher quality existing mines that might have been shut in during this low price period? Well, logically that makes sense, but we're also constrained on potential buyers. And the two biggest players in this space, uh, you know, one of them has political problems for being too closely aligned with Russia. The other one is vertically integrating, is becoming a you know a builder of power plants and provider of services and things. I mean, they have a, a lot on their plate, mm-hmm. and they also have tons of projects in their own pipeline. They've they've got an inventory of high margin projects of their own. They they don't need to go shopping. Mm-hmm. So and there are there are prime candidates up there in Canada just waiting for the buyout and waiting and waiting and waiting. Like they've been prime candidates for a long time. They didn't just become a prime candidate last month. Mm-hmm. And they're still waiting. So uh, I, I see this as something that's inevitable in this sector. But is it imminent? No, I'm not convinced it is. Is it happening now? Absolutely not. And I vastly prefer happening now to imminent. And never mind, you know, forget about inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of, to me, it, I think it kind of ties both of these things together is hopefully the the bigger companies, A, and also the holders of this secondary supply that we spoke about a moment ago, are good stewards of the uranium market going through this, these price levels and manage it, let's say, more efficiently than the last big spike that we had. Yeah, hopefully. But, you know, hope is not a really solid uh, basis for speculation. But let me Mm -hmm. put it this way. We're at 93 bucks a pound right now. If some fund or, or, or one of these uh, would-be producers, you know, decides to sell their uranium inventory to build their next mine, uh, A, there's no reason for them to whack the market. They're not going to try to send uranium prices down. They'll work their best to, you know, sell and maintain the highest prices they can get. Uh, but let's say that even with that, it, it does put some pressure on the spot market. You know, I can see it going back down to 80, 70 easily, maybe even 60. Mm-hmm. That would take a lot of selling, I think, to make it go down to 60. Um, but 60 is enough for the low-cost producers to make money. So I, that wouldn't destroy the market. And then I think it would recover. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, don't forget that that, you know, the spot market, you know, it's a quasi-spot market, really. But it it historically does not, cannot diverge from the term market for long. The long-term, con- like the, the miners, they don't generally sell into the spot market. They sign long-term contracts whenever possible to, you know, to secure profitable operations. They're not going to sign contracts at 50 bucks a pound or 40 bucks, you know, like it, it, the spot price can fluctuate, but the term contract price cannot go, lo- go below what the companies need. And most of them need, you know, 70 plus dollar uranium. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the absence a major nuclear accident, which I know the uranium bugs hate it when I say this, but this is true. Anybody who speculates in this space has to understand that if there's another Fukushima or life forbid another Chernobyl, 
like these speculations can go to zero or effectively go to zero. Mm-hmm. Do not enter unless you're willing to accept that risk. Now, it's highly improbable. And unless that happens, I think, you know, the bullish outcomes are are mouthwatering. But so what I'm saying is, you know, the, the long-term contract price, I think, has absent a major nuclear accident, has put a floor under the spot price. In, in you know, we've spent years waiting for these old, lower-priced long-term contracts to roll off, and they are. They have been. Almost all of them are gone. I think our friends, our big friends in Canada may have a little bit left, but it's not much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and the miners, you know, they're, they're just not going to sign contracts at prices that don't make the money. So I, I really do think that we have a new floor here in this market. And that's a good thing for all our speculations going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, Lobo, I appreciate you giving us your perspective on all these different markets and the nuanced answers of, you know, making sure we're kind of considering every possible outcome here. Um, about every possible, but I, I hope we've given people a more balanced and you know, I'm not just a cheerleader. I'm not a permabull or bear on anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, for what it's worth, what I said today, it's not a prediction. It's not a promise. It's just how I see things, the most likely paths I see ahead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? Nope, that's it. That's that's how I see it. You know, I'm going up to the Vancouver show soon. And then PDAC, I'll be kicking rocks and I'll be doing my best to help you out to the best of my abilities. Excellent. And of course, those free reports are all available at independentspeculator.com. And of course, I, I think you post all of those links as well on at due diligence guy on Twitter, right? Yes, sir. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks for your time today, Lobo. Thank you, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.